So, we are in our, the Gospel of Matthew. So, uh, if you're following along, we are going to be in, uh, in chapter 15. But before we get into there, I wanted to ask you a question. If you're married, you probably have a quick answer to this. Have you ever been embarrassed by someone's behavior that you are close to, someone's behavior that, that, uh, that you love or at least care about? I think a lot of us have. I think there have been times when we've been with people. Sometimes they're a friend. Sometimes they're our spouse. Sometimes they're our kids. Uh, sometimes it's us, but we never really notice it when it's us that causes the embarrassment. But they'll say or they'll do something that is just like, you just go, oh, I can't believe they just said that or did that. They mention, uh, they bring up a name that's like, you know, not really the, the person that the family wants to talk about. Or they bring up an, an incident or they just say some kind of opinion, which is kind of out there. And sometimes it's, a, it's a, just a misstep that's out of character for them. And you want to go and, and it's like you have this urge to try and explain to everybody in the room He's not really like this, or she's not really like this. Uh, some years ago, there was a TV personality on, in the U.S. Her name is Kathy Lee Gifford, and she was interviewing an actor named Martin Short. And some of you may know who Martin Short is. He's a comedic actor, a uh, very funny guy. And, uh, in, and he was on the show to promote his, his, the film that he was in. And she has one of these oh-no moments and I'm going to show the clip to you. It's very short. It's only about 20 seconds. Then I'm going to give you some more information and then have you watch it again. So let's just watch, the, watch this through the first time. And he and Nancy have gotten one of the greatest marriages of anybody in show business. How many years now for you guys? We uh, married 36 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're still, like, in love. Madly in love. Madly wow. in love. Why? <laughs> Cute. I'm cute. <laughs> yes, that is true. And you make each other laugh. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of making each other laugh, you have a little something in that bag. Oh, well, this is, this is this something is that um, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg suggested it wanted to gift you guys. Well, Jeffrey knows you know, as well. So they, they're pretty innocuous. No big deal there, right? Well, they go to commercial, and the producer tells her that Martin Short's wife has been dead for two years. She died of ovarian cancer. And so with that in mind, that's why he has some of these strange responses. He's kind of he's not smiling when she says, how long have you been married? And he kind of, he's trying to think very quickly on his feet what to do. And, uh, and when she says, you're still in love, why? And she's been dead for two years. And he loved her deeply. He wrote about in her book, Her Lost. Now watch it, knowing that. <laughs> And he and Nancy have gotten one of the greatest marriages of anybody in show business. How many years now for you guys? We uh, married 36 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're still, like, in love. Madly in love. Madly wow. in love. Wow. Why? <laughs> cute. I'm cute. <laughs> yes, that is true. And you make each other laugh. Yes. Right? Yeah. Speaking of making each other laugh, you have a little something in that bag. Oh, well, this, is, this is this something is that... Um, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg suggested you kind of get that sense. You know, now you know the story that his his wife has been dead for two years. He loved her very, very much, and she just keeps going on about it. Well, why? Why do you make each other laugh? And everything she says, you know, is just a dagger to his heart. And to her credit, she she apologized afterward, and Martin Short was very gracious with it. He. Uh, I think it's interesting that he tries to very much not, 
not humiliate her in front of everybody. He doesn't stop her and say, well, my wife passed away two years ago. He, he tries to keep it going because he's trying to protect her. He's a very nice guy. But there's so much pain in that moment. You know, when you're watching her, you're just going, oh, stop, stop. But she doesn't stop. And in the Bible, there's several stories of, of incidents which takes place which are embarrassing to the character involved. And, you know, sometimes we think about the idea, I, I wish, you know, what, how great it would be to have your name in the Bible and your story in the Bible. But, you know, like you think of Noah's story. We think of Noah's ark and all that. But there's also the story of Noah that after the flood, he planted a vineyard. He, he partook of the fruit of the vine a bit too much, got drunk, passed out naked. And when one of his kids finds him passed out naked, Noah is so angry and embarrassed that he ends up cursing his own son. That's an embarrassing story. How would you like that to be a story about you that the rest of humanity reads for all of human history? Pretty embarrassing. King David, he has his embarrassing moments. You know, we, all, we kind of think of David as, you know, David and Goliath and all that. David, a man after God's own heart. But in the story of David, we also know that he had an affair with Bathsheba that he tried to shamefully cover up the results of the affair by having her husband, who by all accounts is a, is a noble guy, put to the front lines of a war so that he dies. It's a shameful story. And then David's family life continues with shameful stories, like, like one son raping his own sister, half-sister and, and all the things that go on in there. There's a lot of embarrassing moments in there. And Peter, the apostle Peter, has... Numerous embarrassing moments. You know, he has the get-behind-me-Satan moment. He has the denial-of-Jesus moment. I mean, Peter has his series of moments that are embarrassing. But I, I like that the Bible kept these potentially embarrassing stories because it gives it an air of authenticity. Have you ever heard people say, oh, the Bible's just written by men and it's all edited and, and all this stuff? If, if that were true, these stories wouldn't be in there. You know, we would edit out these stories because they're embarrassing stories, but they're in there. And I think it lends an air of authenticity to the, to the Scripture. And also it's helpful, isn't it, to hear that there are stories about people who are not perfect, clearly not perfect. We wouldn't even let King David teach Sunday school at this church, given his past. But God uses them. There's a redemption that's there. God is able to use them. And so it reminds us, you know, yeah, God could use us. God could use me in spite of my imperfections. In spite of your imperfections, God can, can use us. But Jesus is the exception, right? Jesus is the very word of God made flesh, whose nature and character is that of God. He's in a whole different category. And so then when Jesus seems to step out of character, out of that character of the wise and the kind and caring of everybody, it's uncomfortable. And today's story in the Gospel of Matthew, which is also found in the Gospel of Mark, is probably one of the most uncomfortable stories we have about Jesus interacting with another person. Let's read it. So this takes place after Jesus had his latest uh, argument with the Pharisees, and he leaves, and he goes into a Gentile area. And that's what this is, is pointing out in this first verse. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So that's just crossing the Sea of Galilee, and he's in Gentile territory now, non-Jewish-run territory. A Canaanite woman from that region, and Mark tells us she's a Syrio-Phoenician woman, so they, she's very, very not Jewish, came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. 
My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and, be and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. I think in all of the scripture, all of the stories of Jesus, all of the teachings from Jesus, this is the only one that makes me think the New Testament needed better editors. Because this is one of those stories that at first glance doesn't seem in place, right? Jesus seems very out of character here. Because this is the same Jesus that embraced the woman caught in adultery, who cared about the lepers who, was, who were on the outside of society, who just previously in the Gospel of Matthew, a Gentile centurion had come asking him to heal his servant, and Jesus is fine. He's like, yeah, I'll even go to your house and do it. And if you remember the story, the centurion says, you don't have to come to my house. Just say the word and it will be done. And Jesus commends him on his faith and the servant is healed. So what is going on here? Why does he seem so rude to this woman? And let me tell you, there's a lot of study done on this and we can't hear the tone of voice. We can't see the expression on his face. But it seems like from all indications... This story is as it sounds. These are one of those times that we would be sitting there watching Jesus and wondering, wow, what got into him? Why is he doing this? So in order to understand a story like this, whenever you come to the Bible and you, there's a part that you don't get and you're just kind of wondering what it's about, there's some things you should think about. And the first thing you should think about is it's there for a reason. Because no, remember this, Jesus cast demons out from probably thousands of people by this point in his ministry. He has healed people innumerable. He's, at some times, he's gone for days at a time. Uh, in fact, in this passage, in between this passage and another, he goes for three days. It seems like during these three days, he's just healing and taking care of people, casting out demons. So then you have to ask yourself, of all the stories that are there, for example, the Gospel of John tells us that the Gospels only hold a little bit of what Jesus did. He says all the libraries and all the books in the world couldn't hold all the, all the deeds of Jesus. So if that's the case, why this story? Why is this one here? Because this is a very detailed story. If you're going to tell, you could tell one of hundreds of stories of demons being cast out. Why this one? The other thing you should ask yourself is that the gospel is written after the events of the book of Acts. If you read the, if you read the Bible, the book of Acts... Uh, comes after the Gospel of John, but it's actually directly connected to the Gospel of Luke. So Luke is part one, Acts is basically part two. And the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, were written after the events of the book of, uh, in the book of Acts. John is probably written, written quite a bit after the book of Acts. And if you read the book of Acts, there is a, a long and painful process that the church goes through, the early church goes through, 
of asking the question, what do you do with the Gentiles? What do you do with the non-Jews? Because the early church was, mostly, was all Jewish. And the idea that somehow the Messiah that was meant for the Jews in the minds of the people could also be for the non-Jews was very difficult for them to comprehend. It would almost be like us trying to comprehend, did Jesus come for an alien? Like if some alien landed and we'd be wondering, can he be saved? You know, it would be, it'd be something that's just completely outside of our, of our grasp of understanding. And in the, God, in the book of Acts, it describes the process that God goes through to bring Peter, originally, the, the chief of the apostles, to the place of understanding that, yes, the Messiah was also for the non-Jews. Even though the Old Testament said as much, more than once, particularly in the book of Isaiah, which we read today, they still couldn't get their mind around the idea that the Messiah was also for the non-Jews. And in the Bible, they will call them the Greeks or they'll call them the Gentiles. So if that's the case, why would, after this has all been worked out, would Mark, which is, which is he's probably writing Peter's account, why would they include this story? This seems to reopen up a bunch of old wounds about uh, J Jewish attitudes toward the Gentiles. Why? Why is it there? And then again, as you consider how Jesus treated every other person in society, like we said, the woman caught in adultery, the unclean lepers, the Roman centurion who was a, who was a Gentile, why this woman? Why is he so harsh with her? Why is she, he rude? And he is rude. I'll point out some of the stuff he does. Or it can be interpreted as rude. And I wish I could tell you there's this long and accepted understanding in the church of this, of this particular passage, but there's not. There's a, there's a lot of good thought in it. There's a lot of speculation that goes with that good thought because Jesus never explains himself. And the apostles never ask him to explain himself. He never explains himself. He just had the story and that's it. So understand, as I tell you how I understand this story, it's going to include some of my own speculation and I want to be upfront with that. But one of the things that we have to remember is, okay, why is this story here? I think it's answering the question that the early church had as to where do the non-Jews fit into Jesus' story? Where do the non-Jews fit in to this story of redemption, the story of salvation? Because by and large, the vast majority of all the characters are Jewish. All the apostles are Jewish. Now, some are Hebraic Jews, some are Grecian Jews, but they're all Jews. And Jesus himself is Jewish, comes from a Jewish background. So, this, so the question is, well, where do the Gentiles fit in? And when this gospel was written, this was, an, this was still a question that was kind of forming in people's minds. What do we do with the non-Jews? And I think what we have here is you have the, the, the author, and actually the original author is Mark, very intentionally putting together some stories that take us through the history of God's relationship with the Gentiles. And Mark very cleverly takes two incidents. He takes this incident, and remember, he could have picked from any incident, you know, dozens of incidents. He took this story, and he follows it up with another story, which we'll look at next week. It's called The Feeding of the 4,000. And it's another story which you might say, why is that there? We already have The Feeding of the 5,000. Why would we include the feeding of the 4,000? It seems like a bit of a step down after you have the feeding of the 5,000. But what's interesting is that all these stories are taking place among non-Jews. This, this chapter, this verse, chapter 15, this little section here, is very much taking place 
among people who are Gentiles. And the scripture makes that clear. It starts out, he withdrew away from there to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And the scripture is clear. He did not go to the cities of Tyre and the city of Sidon because historically the cities of Tyre and Sidon are enemies to the city of Jerusalem. But he goes to the region. He goes to that area. And then this lady comes out and begins to, to plead for him to take care of her, her daughter, that she's demon-possessed. And his first response is what? is silence. He just ignores her like she doesn't even exist. And this is where I think basically you see in these stories kind of the journey of the Gentiles with God. Because if you look in the Old Testament, Gentiles or non-Jews are pretty much in place to serve as the bad guys in, in the Old Testament. Because the story is, the Old Testament is about the chosen people. And after the book of, you know, after you get into Genesis for a while, Abraham becomes that chosen one. Abraham has his son Isaac. Isaac has his son Jacob. Jacob's name is the one that's changed from Jacob to Israel. That's why you always hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that is, that is the God of the chosen people. And the Old Testament is following the, the, the journey of the chosen people, which eventually become the kingdom of Israel. Eventually, you know, we're told that the Messiah is going to come from them. So in the beginning of the Old Testament, like the Egyptians, for example, they're mostly just there to be the bad guys. There's no place in the early Old Testament that there's a lot of consideration given to the salvation of the non-Jews, of, non of the Gentiles. And in fact, in the early Old Testament, they weren't even called Jews in the time of Abraham because Jacob hadn't been born yet. They're just either called the Hebrews or the, or the chosen people of God. And so there isn't much consideration given to the Gentiles. There's silence. Then later on in the Old Testament, there's actually some kind of interaction, but it's not that great. And this woman in the story here, is, uh, he's not, she's not deterred by Jesus just kind of holding her at arm's length and, and saying nothing. She keeps going, and she uses a title called Son of David. And I pointed out to you a few weeks ago, this title is an interesting one. It's only used in Matthew six times, and in the other gospel of synoptic gospels, Luke and Mark, it's only used once, and it's in reference to the same, uh, same story. But this title, Son of David, I don't want to get into all the details of it, but suffice it to say for this morning, for the Jews, it was a very specific title for the Messiah. Not just a Messiah, because they would use the term Messiah like Savior. You had lots of folks claim that they were saviors of people, but the Messiah. Son of David was a very specific title for the Messiah. And so it's intriguing that this very Gentile woman, and again in Mark, she's, she's, so, she's so described as a Syrophoenician to let us know that there's, a, there's no Jewishness in her at all, that she knows this title. Which is why I think Jesus then responds to her by saying this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He begins to respond to her, but the response is cold. And it's a, it's a response that basically says to her, if you know my proper title, then you should know my proper mission. And my proper mission is to the lost sheep of Israel. And again, this idea of Jesus coming first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles, is acknowledged throughout the Old Testament. We even read it today out of, out of Romans. And, and when Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Most of us are okay with that. But there's a coldness in the way that Jesus answers here. 
And it's a coldness which is reflected, like, say, in the prophet Jonah. Jonah is told by God to interact with the city of Nineveh, which was a Gentile city and was a city that was an enemy to Israel. And if you remember the story, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh. And why doesn't he want to go to Nineveh? It's not because he's afraid. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he does not want the Ninevites to actually listen to him and repent and receive mercy from God. Jonah wants the Ninevites to burn. He wants them to go through judgment. That's why after he finally, you know, he runs away from God, you know the story of Jonah, gets followed by the whale, gets thrown up back on the beach, barfed back up on the beach. Then he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites, and then he sits on a, under a tree waiting to watch Nineveh get destroyed. And he's extremely disappointed in God when God has mercy on the Ninevites after they repent. It's actually kind of a funny story in a, in a strange sort of way. But that's how Jesus seems to respond to her. He responds, but it's cold. I only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But this woman, she is a, she is a remarkable uh, example of persistence. She is not going to break back down. She approaches Jesus. The scripture says she begins to kneel down before him, saying, Lord, help me. But then Jesus says something which would seem to end the conversation for any of us. He says this. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That's, that's harsh. And in the Greek, what he actually says, uh, he says something more like this. It's not good to take the little people's bread and throw it to the little dogs. He calls her a little dog. And he talks about the children's bread. So it's not right to take the little people's bread and throw it to the little dogs. I think most of us at this point, we just say, well, I guess this guy isn't for me. He's not going not gonna to help me out. Because what is Jesus reflecting there? Well, now he's reflecting very much the Pharisees of his time, their attitude toward the non-Jews. The Pharisees of his time thought that the non-Jews were unclean dogs. And we're not talking about a, my, my pet, like, ooh, like Germans love their dogs. Here, it's not, it's not what we're talking about here. This is an insult. This is like some of you from African countries know. You know, it's, it's an insult to call someone a dog. And it's an insult in the Middle East as well to call this woman a little dog. So we see here in these responses, you have the first the response of silence. In the Old Testament, there is no real talking to the Gentiles or about them. There's no real consideration about their salvation. The mid part of the Old Testament, Jonah and all those folks, there's a, there's, a, there's a discussion, and you see that God has a heart for the Gentiles, but the people really don't. Jonah doesn't really as a prophet. And at the end, Jonah doesn't really have a change of heart. If you read the book of Jonah, it ends on a question. God is saying, shouldn't I care about them? And it just ends there. <laughs> and then you have Jesus reflecting here the current attitude of the Pharisees toward the Gentiles. But this woman is clever, and she's humble. And she says, very famously, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed from, on the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She, should, she could have chosen to be angry with Jesus at this point. She could have chosen to be humiliated. She could have fired back with anger. Or she could have just given up and walked away. But she persists. And in her persistence, she's clever. But she's also very humble. And, of course, Jesus then responds to her in this way. 
which seems to kind of redeem the story. Oh, woman, your faith is great. And when he says, oh, woman, that little phrase is a phrase of honor. He changes the tune, and she goes from little dog to oh, woman, which isn't just like, oh, woman, but it's, it's a praise thing. Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And it seems like this verse kind of redeems the rest of the story. But does it? I mean, if this woman had not been persistent and clever, you know, this, this reflection of Jesus is not great. And for me, this is where God's personality is both apparent and a mystery. Because God seems to like, throughout the scripture, people who are humbly willing to engage him. People who are humbly willing to engage him and even negotiate with him. And maybe this is kind of what prayer is supposed to be. You know, we're told God, God knows what we need before we ask for it. And so then people start chasing these monkeys in their head. And they're like, well, why should I pray at all then? Because if God already knows what I need, blah, 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 blah. Starts running around their head and they like, why, 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 why bother praying? I think this is part of the reason. I don't think prayer isn't so much to change God, but to change us. To change how we are dealing with a situation in front of us. Now, sometimes God will listen to the humble negotiation. For example, Abraham famously negotiates with God when he knows they're going to go destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story? And Abraham goes, but would you destroy those cities if there's a hundred righteous people in there? And the, and the messengers, there's three men, and people theologically sometimes see that as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or they're angels, but there's this one that hangs back and talks with Peter. They think that's kind of the pre-incarnate Christ. But the point is, he goes, will you destroy these cities for if there's a hundred righteous people? And if you remember the story, they go, no, we'll, we'll let it stand for a hundred righteous people. Then Abraham, he's thinking because he knows these cities. He goes, well, okay, okay, what if there's only 50 righteous people? <laughs> and then they negotiate that down to Abraham finally says, what if there's only 10 righteous people? So Abraham, you know, you see in the Old Testament this back and forth. Moses negotiates with God all the time. God's like, I'm going to destroy the people of Israel and just start over again with you. And Moses would say things like, well, if you do that, then people will say he could bring them out of Egypt, but he couldn't take them to the promised land. He negotiates. And there's a lot of theology that flies around with people's, you know, like, what does this mean? Does this mean God can change his mind? What does it mean? I think a lot of that has to do with us. You see in all these negotiations, there's a humility. Moses is never arrogant with God. Abraham is never arrogant with God. Even Jacob, who's kind of a, a head case in the Old Testament, uh, he's always lying about everything. He, he wrestles with God. You know, there's this humility, but he takes hold of God and engages with God. And I think in this woman, we see a couple things. One, I think you see this journey of, of, the, uh, of the Gentiles, and it continues with the feeding of the 4,000, which we'll look at next week. The, feed, the reason why the feeding of the 4,000 is there is because there's some minor detail changes from the feeding of the 5,000, which kind of brings this whole, thing, this whole idea of God's interaction with the Gentiles to full circle. And so you have these two stories, this woman and the feeding of the 4,000, specifically in there to kind of show where do the Gentiles fit in and how, what is the journey of the Gentiles throughout the Scripture. And Jesus kind of encapsulates it in these two stories. But there's also the very human story of this woman. I mean, you can't help but admire her. I mean, I, I hate confrontation. I'm not a very confrontational guy. And I would have probably quit. As soon as he called me a little dog, I would have taken my little dog tail, tucked it between my legs, and went home. You know? And I'm probably a lot of you would too, right? At that point, you're like, this guy's not going to help me. But she persisted, and she persisted with humility. She didn't say, how dare you call me a dog? 
You know, she's like, well, even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table. And Jesus is impressed. He's like, huh. And I don't think he was surprised here. I do think that this was all an orchestrated conversation. And I think this is, and this is to the point to get to, that even the Gentiles are also engaged by God if we seek him out, if we pursue him. You know, the problem with a lot of the Gentiles in the time of Christ is they had their own gods. They didn't want to pursue the God of Israel. They wanted to pursue the gods of Rome or the gods of Phoenicia or their other gods. But to those who wanted to pursue the one true God, he is available to them. And that goes the same with us. So I would encourage you to come to Jesus. And when you come to him, come humbly but persistently. Prayer is a mystery. I, t- I already told you that, uh, that, you know, Paul in the book of Romans says, God already knows before you even ask what you need. And yet Jesus teaches that we are to be persistent in prayer, just like uh, a woman going to an unrighteous judge. And it's funny that Jesus would cast God into the role of the unrighteous judge who pounds on the door, refusing the injustice done to her until that judge finally budges. And Jesus uses her as an example and says, be persistent, just like she was. So you have this mystery in prayer of, of a call from Jesus to be persistent, to be humble, and yet at the same time we're told from the Apostle Paul, God already knows what we need before we even ask. And this is the mystery of prayer. And we're not going to talk much more about it today. But I believe that prayer isn't just supposed to be saying a set of right words before God, but it's to be engaging God, engaging Him. And God seems to be okay with that. Don't ever be afraid to engage God as long as you go with humility. If you go all arrogant into the presence of God, well, Lord, this is what I think, that this is the way it should be, and you need to do this, and dot, 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 dot. Yeah, I don't think God's very appreciative of that. But when you go to him with humility, and I think he also likes a little bit of cleverness, if you can throw that in, because yeah, you see Jesus respond to this more than once, this little clever twist. He likes that. I think he likes it because it shows that we are engaging with him not just as a concept, but as a person. And God is an emotional being. He's a being with emotions. He's a person. He's just not, well, and that's the miracle of Jesus Christ. He's the very word of God made flesh. He's not so far from us except he's not twisted up by sin. You were created in the image of God. God wants you to engage with him. So do so with courage. Be authentic so it can be said of you, your faith is great. And when you're out in the world and you're talking with people who feel like God is very other, just remind them that he's there for them as well. And never be afraid to share who Christ really is. Do not be ashamed of the gospel because it's the very power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jews, then for the Gentiles. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the, the complexity of your word, but also the simplicity of your word, being able to see things in it which may run deeper, and then we have just the human interest story of this uh, impressive woman who comes and without being deterred by silence. She's not deterred by silence. She's not deterred by telling her that the history doesn't include her. She's not deterred by being called a little dog. And in the end, she finds that Savior that she was looking for, the one who can help her and remove from the life of her daughter the influence of the devil. So, Father, we pray that you would help us remember this. Sometimes we get really discouraged when it comes to prayer because if we don't hear what we want to hear right away, you know, we just get, give up. You know us. 
You, you're well aware of our nature. So we pray we could take incidents like this and also other places we're told to be persistent to continue to come to you in prayer. And kind of with that in mind, we want to uh, lift up to you Erwin's sister again you know, in this desperate place of a cancer that spread through her shoulder and through her, into her lung. Father, we lift her up to you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we lift you up to her with that same kind of persistence. We come to you like children, humbly saying it seems good to us that she would receive a healing that could give glory to you. And Lord, we, we submit that into your hands. And we ask that you would do that as our Father, that you would heal this woman that we know that you care about, that has been created in your image. Father, we know that, uh, that Erwin, his heart is, is aching for her. And so, Father, for the sake of our brother, if not just for our sister too, God, we pray that you bring healing into her life and that you would be glorified by it. And as Marie said, if it's by common grace or if it's by uh, your supernatural grace, we are uh, willing to take whatever. But we would ask first for that supernatural grace that would give you that undisputed glory that this is the hand of God. And so we submit that to you. But we do so without demand and without arrogance. We know that this is in your hands and that uh, Erwin's sister is in your hands. Father, we also pray in other areas. There's many people here with different things in their life, and some are discouraged. They've prayed about something once or twice, and it hasn't really come the way they want, and so they've given up. Or they've been told discouraging things by people around them, people they respected, and so they've given up. But, Father, I pray that, that if it is still within your, you know, if, it, if your desire is that they would still pray, if it's still burning within their heart that they want to pray about this issue, then, Father, I pray you would help us to do so and to remind us to do so, to be persistent, to seek you out, to know you. And, Lord, uh, in, this, in this place, we pray that you would bring comfort to the hearts of many who are struggling with different issues and who are discouraged right now. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all your word. We thank you for the stories. We thank you for what they show us, the deep things, the things on the surface, the things in between. And, Father, we pray that we can apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.